You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Uh, Denise Hearn is an advisor, an author, and a speaker who works with organizations, asset managers, and companies that want to use their resources to support a more equitable future. She co-authored a fantastic book called The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. The Financial Times named it one of the best books of 2018. I just got around to reading it this year, and it will be on my most recommended book list at the end of the year. Denise and I met last year when I was in Seattle. We didn't have enough time to talk and I think we've both been looking forward to chatting again. So welcome, Denise. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Chuck. I'm so thrilled to chat with you further. (laughs) I am as well. Your book is essentially a critique of our modern economic system, but it's not anti-market and it's not anti-capitalism either. I was wondering if you could start with a defense of capitalism. What is good about capitalism and what about it is worth defending? (laughs) This is not how most of my podcasts start. (laughs) I think there's the arguments that are most often sort of tabled in terms of the defense of capitalism tend to be things like, well, uh, billions of people have been lifted out of poverty globally. We've seen these rise in living standards. And I think that those are actually quite nuanced arguments that if you look at, obviously, China was was one of the main reasons, and we certainly wouldn't say that they have, you know, free market dynamics happening. And so, so I don't know that capitalism can claim all the credit. What I am more philosophically interested in is actually that, that people tend to think that, you know, capitalism is the bastion of sort of free market competition. I actually think that it's one of the most cooperative things that humans have done, and that it's also very similar to, you know, we were discussing earlier about biomimicry, but, you know, it's self-organized in, in many ways. And um, I think that that cooperation provides the container under which competition can take place. And what we tried to get at in the book was basically going back to first principles to say that if you, if you believe in free market capitalism and you want to see competitive markets, you have to start from a place of truthfulness and acknowledging that the U.S. is very, very far from that reality. And so we weren't saying the myth of capitalism to really make a value judgment actually about capitalism itself, but to say that we essentially live with the myth that we live in competitive free markets in the U.S. because we don't. Right. I feel like my journey to reading your book over decades was to start with that myth maybe in the 1990s when I was an undergrad and coming out of college and, and looked at myself as a free market adherent. And I interpreted the market around me as a free market. People build suburban homes because that's what the market wants. And people drive their automobiles everywhere because that's what the market wants. And, and it was really when I started to look at natural systems read my Darwin, start to understand what competitive markets look like, that I started to become a little disillusioned with the system that we have. Your, your book does a fantastic job breaking that down. Can I maybe ask this as a way to, to delve into this, the way markets actually function? 
what is so important about competition in markets? And you also mentioned cooperation. You use some terms in uh, monopolies and oligopolies and, and, and different things. There's some cooperation that is really good. There's some cooperation that happens because of competition. Can you talk a little bit about the role of competition in good functioning markets? Yeah, absolutely. So what we tried to chronicle essentially was since the 1980s, the U.S. has gone from what was really a dynamic economy and it really started with, of course, the deregulation movement and you know what we now term neoliberalist sort of ideology. Um, it also happened with a, a particular intellectual capture of the antitrust discipline, which was really meant to, again, be the, the countervailing force against concentrated corporate power. And what happened was you had a bunch of sort of economists and uh, people at the Chicago School, like Milton Friedman, who said that when you're looking at antitrust, you really should only be concerned about consumer pricing and whether a merger will raise prices for consumers. And if it if it's purported that it will not, then we will just, you know, there'll be a frenzy of mergers and we shouldn't really worry about any other dynamics about concentrated power or market share or any, anything. And so we, we've seen that over the last number of decades, that's exactly what's happened is we've had industries go from, you know, multiple players that were competing against each other to basically You've got the sweet 16 of, you know, of industry concentration where you end up really with two to maybe three players at the top of each industry. That dynamic of reduced competition is really harmful in so many ways. It harms consumers because although all the mergers go through on the purported benefit of lowering prices, basically when they do the analysis, you know, the majority of mergers after they take place, companies, what do they do? Well, they raise prices on consumers because now they have more market power, they become the price setters for goods or, or for services. And when there's reduced competition, actually the only, you know, the only way that you can continue to, to increase your profits is not necessarily to steal market share from your competitor because now you're tacitly colluding essentially with them, but it's to simply raise prices on consumers. Increase and your margins, yeah. Raise your margins and there's fewer choice, right? So it hurts consumers. It hurts workers because workers find it very difficult to bargain against, you know, monopolist or oligopolist for higher wages. And we've also seen the erosion of other countervailing forces that used to be in place like unions, you know, and I know unions are controversial, but it's just more to say that the infrastructure through which workers used to have the leverage to, you know, ask for the things and demand the things that they wanted have sort of eroded away at the same time that corporate power has concentrated. So it hurts workers. And we've seen, you know, one of the major reasons that we started writing the book was that the we noticed that wages were essentially totally diverging from productivity. And it was an economic conundrum for economists, why is this happening? And that's part of our answer was, you know, and a lot of people blamed it on globalization or technology. But our point was actually a, a little discussed at the time. Reason for this is really the, the concentration, concentrated markets, because, you know, monopoly is when you have one seller, but there's a word called monopsony when you're, you're the only buyer and you're the only buyer of labor, you know, in a small town, Walmart or something, you can set the price of, of wages. And then, you know, lastly, it also hurts other businesses and entrepreneurs and suppliers. And then, of course, there's the broad sort of democratic and, you know, citizen effects that we're seeing, particularly with big tech. And so, you know, our point was to say that when you have reduced competition, it really has this litany of bad outcomes for markets and for society that we really need to be aware of. You know, if we want to return to this sort of textbook 
idealized version of competitive free markets, we at least have to deal with this problem as, as like a first principle problem. There's a sense, I think, that when you talk about monopolies and raising prices, you know, this idea that all these places are conspiring to to raise prices. I think you get this mental image, or I, I do, I, I think a general public might, of people sitting in a dark room and conspiring on what the rate should be. That's really not how it happens, but it happens nonetheless. I feel like there could be like a theoretical case that, okay, well now we will have a more efficient, you know, when a merger happens, we'll have a more efficient system and prices will come down. And, and what you seem to suggest is that maybe that happens in a place, but over time, that pricing power changes. How do businesses, without colluding, actually collude? How do they, at the end of the day, wind up raising prices, even though they're not meeting in some smoke-filled room and working out how they can stick it to the man, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. There's like tacit collusion and then, you know, sort of like direct collusion. And Obviously, they they're both happen, <laughs> and there's lots of examples of, of industries directly colluding with each other to, you know, or companies directly colluding within an industry to raise prices. But there's also really interesting things that I learned in the process, like airlines, as an example, used to listen in on each other's annual or their quarterly earnings calls. And airlines would use language that sort of signaled to other players, like they would say, we're going to in- institute capacity discipline on this route at this time, which means that they would have fewer planes flying from, I don't know, New York to San Francisco over Thanksgiving or something. And at really high value times, meaning that they could they could gouge the, the prices up and um, use smaller planes and have fewer seats available and things like that. And so other airlines would take that cue and would do the same thing. There is evidence that that sort of behavior happens. The other interesting thing, though, is that actually there was a study done that was trying to un- get underneath this and understand what was the predominant reason that or the predominant conditions under which collusion and sort of cartels form. And they tried a bunch of different things and you know, nothing was really coming, coming out as uh, statistically significant. And then they actually found that low interest rate environments was the thing that you know, had people colluding and cartels forming and um, staying together longer than any other variable. The thesis is essentially that when you're in that low interest rate environment, you can afford to sort of be patient and wait longer for the effects of, of that you know, cooperation essentially to to play out. And so, you know, obviously we've been in very low interest rate environments. And so that also is a precipitating factor. Right. The low interest rates also seem to me to encourage the merger itself, right? The idea that, you know, we can now get capital very cheaply, a very free flowing. Mm -hmm. And so you see this run up of mergers and acquisitions in this kind of environment. Yeah. Completely, completely. I really enjoyed, actually, in a gratuitous way, how you guys beat up on Warren Buffett a little bit. Um, <laughs> not that it's a fair fight, because obviously, you know, your influence and my influence is very small in comparison to his. But I remember in the 90s, you know, I was right out of college. I, was, I had my 401k. I was going to invest a little bit of money. And there was this the Warren Buffett way or the Warren Buffett approach. I remember studying this. Mm-hmm. And it was all about looking at the fundamentals of the company and understanding where the company had its competitive edge and how it sat in the market. And I, I remember really getting into this and being like, oh, yeah, you know, I can, I'm, I can be a savvy person. And every investment I made turned out poorly. Like I thought, like I figured this out. I was doing this right. 
And then I watched Warren Buffett and what he did. And he didn't do anything like what I think his analysis or you know, supposed analysis suggested he would. He just bought things where he owned everything. Can you talk a little bit about you know, the actual Warren Buffett way and why his kind of approach to investing, which you know, he's an easy one to pick on because he's high profile, but he's not alone in this, right? Oh, certainly not. And he's done a phenomenal job of sort of painting himself as this, you know, folksy. Right. And even, you know, you look at the you look at the photos and he just looks like such a nice old man. You know? <laughs> but really, so many of his investment strategies have been like very extractive. And his whole investing strategy is essentially to invest in oligopolies and invest in moated industries. He'll usually take a position in all you know, all of the major players within that industry. And so, you know, he's invested in Visa and MasterCard, which obviously have a duopoly. You know, he's invested in um, different pharmaceutical companies. So the, the most interesting example, I think, that illustrates this, which we talk about in the book, is um, that he used to be very anti-airline. Yeah. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I, and basically... I'll tell you what, I actually remember distinly him being anti- I remember thinking that I would like to own airline stock and then I remember Warren Buffett saying that that's that's crazy. Don't do that. Here's why. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then fast forward, right? And yep. because the airlines went through a period of a lot of um, upheaval, I think it was in the early '90s, if I'm remembering correctly, after some deregulation. And yes. But then eventually the industry consolidated again to the major four players. And at that point, that's when Buffett got in, and he was actually the primary or secondary. Uh, shareholder in all four of the American predominant airlines. And clearly that, you know, coronavirus really hit hit him on that one. But you can see that it's a very deliberate strategy to basically wait until an industry is concentrated and then invest there because investors are very smart. They know exactly the dynamics we're talking about, which hurt the average person are very good for investors. You know, when you've got companies that have no comp- no real competition that can like forever raise prices on consumers, you've got a cash cow that you're sitting on. And so that's exactly what his strategy has been. And then, you know, he sort of launders, launders that through the, you know, through the giving pledge. And I could say a lot more about that, but. Right. It is that margins, that difference in margin to me, that was so remarkable because once there's four airlines, now you're not having the, there was a period of time where like, it seemed like an airline was going into bankruptcy every six months or every 12 months and having to restructure and, and reemerge from that. And now it's been relatively calm for a long time because everyone has their own hub, their own place. Yeah. What should happen in a system where there's growing margins? And I, I think, you know, when we get to like the biological world, when we see a certain species having excess capacity or excess, you know, foodstuffs or what have you, there's a certain feedback loop that happens that seems to be arrested in our market system today. When Delta can get 25% margins on something or, or, you know, you can see 40%. I think there were even some examples in the books where you had businesses with 70% margins on certain products and no competitor enters the market. What is that telling you? What is that? What should that be telling us? when we look at margins like that without someone stepping in to fill that gap? I think what that tells us is that once these feedback loops get going, it's very difficult to intercept them without, without intentionality. The dynamics will not stop or slow on their own. There needs to be some intervening force in the system that will exert pressure to at least halt or slow that feedback 
back loop from, from, you know, continuing to the, or the flywheel from continuing to go. I mean, another example that I was just reading about recently is there's a, there's a company called um, Transdime, which is, does specialty airline parts for the military and for commercial airlines. And basically they have, they have like a granted essentially legal monopoly because it's so highly specialized. It's very regulated industry, but they are a known price gouger. And they, you know, like there was a study done um, where 46 out of 47 parts that they supplied to the Pentagon were gouging basically with upwards of, yeah, 40, 50, 60, 70% margins on those products. That is just like completely clearly unjust um, from a taxpayer perspective. But because they have no dominant challenger, it's sort of like a species that, you know, that the deer run rampant on the island or whatever, because they have no challenger, you know, you need to actually put something into place. And, you know, it's not that I think regulation is the answer to everything, but you need to have some sort of check on that power for it to be curtailed in a meaningful way. And so, you know, that's, that's some of what we call for in the book is increased, you know, antitrust enforcement um, and other, you know, other leverage points that you can use to try to bring this back into some relative balance. When I listen to free market advocates, and, and I would include myself in that, although maybe with, without the rose-colored glasses about where we're at today, mm-hmm. when I listen to free market advocates, they will say high margins should induce competitors. You know, if, if you're making a large profit in an industry, that right. should be an invitation to someone else to come in and compete in that industry. It seems like we're not seeing that at all. If you are a regulator, like who, who is supposed to step in, I guess, in a situation like this? Take the airlines, for example. You know, we're down to four major airlines and a bunch of, of smaller players who have, have limited market share. In an ideal like market sense, it seems like competitors should come in and, and, and basically dilute that market share. Yeah. If that's not happening, what should happen? What can we do to get to a place where there are other competitors in this marketplace? Just to your point, I think we place a lot of uh, value on this idea of creative destruction to, mm-hmm. you know, to come in and provide that equilibrium again. And I think we over rely on that. And partially, so if you look like, you know, something like the airlines is maybe a harder example because there's, you know, tremendous CapEx costs and things to get right. started. It's sure. by definition of a very difficult industry to enter into. But if you think about something like tech, which most people see as, okay, you know, you write some software, it doesn't, it, you know, there's not a huge investment up front. Why haven't there been more disruptors? And I think the, what we really need to help people understand is that these companies, particularly the tech companies like Amazon, Google, and even Facebook to an extent, are now really controlling the fundamental infrastructure on which business gets done. And so it's not just that you need to compete on like a product or services lens, but it's actually you now as a, you know, you're trying to compete with Google, you fundamentally rely on them for a core component of your business, which is advertising or Amazon. You know, you fundamentally as a third party seller rely on your biggest competitor to do the business that you're doing. And that's, that's where it becomes incredibly difficult for people to actually compete and enter. Um, And if you do reach any level of success, you just get acquired. Uh, right. or, you know, captured and killed. And we've seen that even through the coronavirus, the tech companies have done more acquisitions than they did during the dot-com bubble. 
right now because their competitors or other businesses, innovative businesses are distressed. Maybe they're crunched for cash and this is an opportune time to keep consolidating. And just the scale and the scope of the amount of businesses that are being bought up before they really have a chance to be a, a like credible, you know, look at Facebook and Instagram or Waze and Google Maps or any of these things. There's so many examples where, you know, the biggest potential competitive threat just gets acquired and then it's killed and off, you know, they don't need to worry about it anymore and they right. get all their IP. So I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of friends and, and have made a lot of contacts in Silicon Valley as part of my work with strong towns, it's been, it's been, you know, we have a lot of people in the tech industry who really appreciate our work and have been, you know, re really interesting to chat with mm -hmm. the business model that I get from most of these people is we are building something and our end goal, our exit strategy is to be acquired. Like that's actually what we're building for. And yeah. I don't think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was the case. It, it was, uh, the case of, you know, I was building something and it would be, you know, someday we would go public or someday we would have, you know, the, but it was never like, I hope someday, you know, Amazon buys us or, or Google buys us. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, exactly. How does that well, change? You no, know, there's basically very, very little chance you can actually directly compete with Amazon or Google, right? Well, the, you raise a couple examples in the book of players who essentially, you know, Google came to them or, or one of the big tech companies came to them and said, hey, we, we like what you do. We'd like to acquire you. And they're like, no, thank you. We can stand on our own. And pretty mm -hmm. soon the tech company has built an alternative model and basically put them out of, uh, out of commission. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. There was one example with Amazon. There was uh, diapers.com, which was selling diapers yep. and they wanted to acquire them. Diapers said no. And then Amazon basically was losing a hundred million dollars a quarter or something, if I'm remembering correctly, to undercut them on pricing and basically weaken them to the point where they then actually eventually submitted and were acquired. And then, you know, it was like a year later, Amazon decided, oh, actually we don't like diapers. And <laughs> just decided to divest the business anyways after it was like a basically a shadow of its former self and that kind of thing does happen a lot and so that's exactly the point is it's like you know i think most people realize even if you wanted to try to go out on your own it's you know and there was a big wall street journal article about amazon has a vc fund that goes around investing in you know other businesses but actually what they're doing is totally extracting all of the the ip through the due diligence process and then many times they don't invest or if they do they just launch a competing product and that business is you know null and void essentially right right yeah. the process you just described with diapers.com I know there are people who are going to be listening to this who will say, well, that was great for consumers. You know, sure, you know, diapers.com didn't survive that, but Amazon selling things at a loss. This was always the joke, I think, in the early 2000s with Amazon is thank you all Amazon investors for free shipping. You yeah, know, yeah. you're willing to take losses every quarter so exactly. that I can get my products easily. And I, I remember partaking in that joke, thinking that was kind of funny. You know, here's my package arrives and uh, it's subsidized by Wall Street. Wonderful. It's not so funny after a while though, right? Like yeah. <laughs> the dynamics change. I think maybe I'm getting back to that pricing question again. It feels like we as a society looked at Silicon Valley, but also just this, this kind of broader 
spectrum of what I just would call like modern innovation, this modern just miracle of all these different businesses. It's kind of felt like the Wild West a little bit. Mm -hmm. Was that a transitionary phase that we've now have to come to grips with? That is, to use your book, is that a myth that once existed that no longer existed? Or were we actually buying into the marketing of it? And it, it never really was maybe what it stacked up to be or, or purported itself to be. And, and maybe I'm focusing on the Amazon story a little bit too much, but the early days of Amazon, I remember, were like, you know, let's stand up and defend, free, uh, no taxation for Amazon so that, you know, we can get these budding industries going because they're going to benefit consumers and everybody else. Where did we go wrong in this process? Where did it start to switch from something that was exciting and very market-based and very competitive and very consumer-oriented to something that I think today is hard to deny is very predatory. Yeah, it's only with the benefit of hindsight, right, that often these things become a bit clearer. You know, I think that we over-indexed again on our consumer identity um, to say, you know, well, the only thing I care about as a person is that I get cheap goods, you know? right. And actually, that is so far from the truth. I mean, yes, no one's denying that so many of these companies, you know, even Amazon were incredibly innovative and good for consumers. And that, in fact, that's their entire motto is, is sort of putting the consumer first. But in that process, we really lost our sense of community, of our, you know, worker and employee identities, of our supplier or entrepreneur identities, of our citizen identities. And I think that's been part of the wool that's been pulled over the eyes is really that, you know, as long as we placate you with fast delivery and, you know, you can order anything in the world and have it show up, you know, before you've even thought about it, that you should be happy with this situation. And that's incredibly problematic because we're, we're not one-dimensional. Our consumer identity is, is actually, I think, in the U.S., we really emphasize that as like a core component of how we see ourselves. You know, now we're really recognizing how destructive and damaging this is for so many other parts of not only ourselves, but of our other, you know, fellow citizens who maybe don't have access to the kinds of you know, I'm just thinking about Amazon workers and how it's been chronicled that Amazon actually does heat mapping within their warehouses to alert them to fulfillment centers that are most at risk of organizing, right? Mm -hmm. And so that they can essentially, they can essentially uh, intercept that potential like worker bargaining threat and all kinds of other like really horrific tactics that are used to suppress, you know, the power of workers or the power of their suppliers. And so, yeah, so I think we've over-indexed on that. And, and I do think it's important to note though, that tech is a very specific industry because they were often offering products that were low or no cost to consumers. But again, I want to just bring back to the forefront that in so many other industries, whether it's agriculture or pharmaceuticals or med you know, medical insurance, internet, funeral services. Right, the funeral services part was... <laughs> I, I never knew that like 80% of the <laughs> covered by one or two companies. That's crazy. Yeah, and, the, and in so many other industries, consumers have really borne the brunt of these services and products continuing to rise, right? And that actually that's directly taking out of your pocketbook a huge amount of purchasing power just because 
these companies can now charge you whatever they want. And yeah, funeral services, like, you know, it's just something crazy. I can't remember the exact stats now, but you know, they've gone, mind they've blowing. gone up tremendously. Yeah. yeah well, you, know, you have I, one chapter where you just go through. And I, I think even at the beginning of the chapter, you, you write something like, if you're not upset now, you will be at the end of this chapter. And then at the end of the chapter, I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty ticked off right now. Cause <laughs> you just go through industry after industry after industry. And I'm like, you know, you think funeral services is your local funeral guy. Well, they're all owned by these two companies who own 85% of the market share or something like that. And the important point about that is that it's like, you know, some people are sort of like, okay, well maybe consolidation makes sense when you're trading in, you know, in a global marketplace and things like that. Well, it's like, well, funeral services, no one is shopping around, you know, you're going to go to your local, your local funeral home and there's zero reason it's not a globally tradable good that this is uh, seeing the enormous price gouging that is happening. Right. And similar with other industries too. So I think that's an important argument too. Let me give you a counter argument and have you react to it. I think I read this in Vox years ago, but I might just be, I might just be imposing that on my Vox narrative. It was something along the lines of this Walmart may not be like the greatest company, but I would rather have Walmart than a thousand little ma and pa shops because with Walmart, we can go in and regulate them and force them to provide healthcare and force them to play a living wage. And they will, you know, follow certain rules. But with all these, if we had thousands of ma and pa little hardware stores, we couldn't do that with them. And workers are given a worse situation when they work for the ma and pa store. We can get them a better deal when they work for Walmart. Can you react to that, that argument that consolidation is actually better because the, the, in a sense, we can demand more from the Amazons and the Walmarts and the, the big players than we can from this kind of dispersed landscape of smaller providers? That is a popular narrative. And it seems like in theory, that would that could be a good thing. Um, and yet you see that what happens particularly with, you know, huge companies like Walmart is then they have in, entire lobbying armies that ensure that the, the regulators essentially act in their favor. And that's why we've seen so little challenge to these companies in any real way over the last number of years. I mean, there were zero antitrust cases brought under Obama, as an example, you know, and so progressives need to come to grips with that. Like he was just as complicit, you know, as anyone else. So yeah, so you see that, that essentially the enforcement agencies or the regulatory bodies have been so captured that it's actually very difficult to enforce any kind of real challenge or change. The other thing I would say is, you know, with the example of Walmart, and this is maybe when we get into our, uh, you know, biodiversity connection. But if you take a small town where there used to be the main street that had all the local stores and you had the butcher and you had the hardware person and you had, you know, the florist and you had all these different people, those dollars used to circulate within the community. The towns, people would come and spend the money there and people were more civically engaged. They would give back to the, the high school, I don't know, whatever. But that money used to circulate within the community, providing benefits for everyone there. Now what you have is Walmart comes in, replaces all of that. No one can compete on the main street. And so the main street basically is shuttered. And I mean, when I drive through rural Washington or anywhere, it's like you drive through any small town, there's a subway, there's a Bank of America, right. you know, there's a Honda dealership or something. And all of the local 
entrepreneurs and business owners have been pushed out. And then the, the difficulty is with a Walmart that all of the dollars then that the townspeople are going in and spending in Walmart then just get siphoned off to a headquarters in New York or San Francisco. And so there's been this incredible monetary kind of extraction from rural to urban through that process as well. Right. And that's a big problem. And I'm sure you could speak to this. I, I, I feel case. like in 2016, I was trying to scream this to people like, okay, move to cities, you know, get a, go to college, do this. And I'm like, rural areas are just having all their wealth extracted as fast as possible. Like that's the business model right now. Yeah. Yeah. And Walmart, it was a, it was an intentional strategy. They used Mm -hmm. to actually determine where they were going to open stores based on whether they could monopolize the town essentially. And that was their, you know, that was their very intentional business strategy. None of this is like by accident. I want to make the point that it's not because I think that all these companies are bad actors or that they're malicious or anything like that, but we have to look at the incentive structures that we've built into the finance system, to investor expectations, and all of that is the is the thing that really you know continues this sort of winner-take-all dynamic that is really baked into so many of the, the fundamental paradigms that is what really needs to be addressed before we can make progress here. A predator in the wild would consume as much as they could if there was no check on on their capacity to do that. I'm kind of with you. Like I, I don't think the the story here is necessarily that these places are bad. It's just that we've created a system that incentivizes them to have really bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So there's a great great book called The Nature of Economies by Jane Jacobs that I just finished reading. Yes. And um, now I now I really love you because <laughs> it's just a genius. I mean, everything that she did was so genius, but particularly when she talks about markets, it's just yeah, it's great. It's it great. is great. And then you realize, but the the thing that's frustrating for me is that I do all this work researching, and I'm like, oh, I've really come on to something interesting. And then I go back and I read. I know exactly. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she knew this 40 years ago. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, anyways, but but what she talks about in there is. Uh, is that actually what you you don't see that in natural systems because like a tiger doesn't just go sort of rampaging around. Actually, once it's full, it's kind of full and it lazes around and it, it engages in pro-social behavior and it builds other types of complex behaviors and you know activities that actually one of the key things that ensures that you can survive as a species is that you maintain your habitat. Mm-hmm. And habitat maintenance and habitat health is a hugely important evolutionary concept that is just as important as survival of the fittest. And that those two in concert are really what explain the, the ability for a species to evolve and to survive. And I think what we have failed to recognize in our financial systems is that that, that sort of habitat maintenance and ensuring the health of the ecosystem is concurrently important as ensuring that you have a competitive landscape where people can, you know, that those that are good at, you know, breeding and feeding are rewarded. So that was her main point. Let me delve into that a little bit because I don't want people hearing that to think that that's like a, a hippie comment, like tigers will go around caring for the little critters and species and all that. And it, that actually comes about in nature, in a sense, through what we would call a bio-marketplace. In a sense, you're rewarded as a species. Your genes are passed on to future generations 
when you develop behaviors that actually nurture the habitat as much as your own self. I mean, is, is that a good way to phrase it and describe the relationship? Totally, totally. And that you see so many examples in nature where there's some sort of symbiotic relationship happening or right. mutualism versus one party extracting as much as possible because basically that is a self-terminating loop if you extract and, and we're seeing it in agriculture if you extract everything from the soil it becomes totally fallow and actually then your ability to, <laughs> to the system fails it, yeah yeah the system fails right and 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 so that that was also a point is that so many of these um sort of what they call um uh vicious cycles it's like a feedback loop that's a bad thing are self-terminating and they self-terminate often in death um, or destruction of the the system. And so that's what we really, it's, this isn't airy fairy stuff. This is like the path that we're on right now is towards self-termination if right. we don't figure this out. And it, we're seeing it now with the feedback loops with, you know, climate and everything else that it's sort of like, unless we choose to do things differently now, we know it's not a question where this leads because we have billions of years of evolutionary history to tell us. And we also have the blueprint of how we can do this differently because we have the billions of years of natural intelligence that shows you how to create sustainable ecosystems that have local equilibrium and that produce rich biodiversity and they're self-organizing and they're adaptive and they continue to evolve and emerge. That's what we need to apply to our understanding of markets. Um, and it sounds very theoretical, but I do think that there's so many ways in the work that you're doing, you know, with localizing, relocalizing, and creating diversity within those contexts, again, and economic diversity is so, so important. And it's it's just, we need to, like, we, there's no more time, you know, we need to figure this out. Right. I was where you're discussing today. My mind was starting to get wrapped around this in the mid-2000s. And I watched the housing bubble go insane. And I watched in a market sense, I watched nature intervene and say, okay, now we are going to destroy this market because it's gotten so far out of whack. And there's a Hayekian part of me that I've, I've maybe now moderated a bit in retrospect, but there was a, there was a part of me that looked at this and said, that's the natural outcome here is failure. Like we created this monster we got it out of whack and out of equilibrium, and now the marketplace is going to punish us. I think there's two threads, and you can take whatever one you want or both. Thread number one, that didn't happen because we intervened and we said, we can't you know, take that. We can't take that feedback. We can't deal with that. Mm -hmm. The other thread is that that would have been horrible. I mean, like to live through that would have been a terrible thing. There's a part of me that says we just bought time now. Like we just, we, because we didn't change anything, because we didn't reform, because we didn't make our systems more responsive, we actually just bought time and made it worse. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that tension between as humans, we really don't want to be part of nature. We really don't want markets because we don't want the pain that goes along with them sometimes when we get out of whack. Yet when we intervene because we're human, don't we kind of make things a little bit worse as well? Like what, what is that interplay or what do we have to come to grips with? No, definitely. Well, and I think the, one of the prime candidates here is definitely the federal reserve right. and the role that they've played and that basically nobody wants to be left holding the bag when everything 
falls apart. And so you have, you know, you have, whether that's politicians, it's true for whether that's CEOs, it's true for or whether that's, you know, Federal Reserve, uh, you know, heads who also just want to kick the can further down the road. And that's exactly what we've seen. And now, you know, now we're in this like completely untenable debt situation with zero, you know, to low interest rates for the foreseeable future no way that we will grow our way out. Everybody knows this. All of the pension fund managers know this. And it's just nobody wants to deal with it. I completely agree in a, in a real way because nobody wants to self-inflict the kind of pain or harm that it, that is likely inevitable and coming. Right. Um, and so I think we just sort of say, well, let's, let's continue to see how far we can push this before it kind of comes crumbling down. I'm not like a doomsday person, but I talk to really intelligent, smart people who see yeah. this, you know, happening. And, um, you know, it, I talk to investors who see the writing on the wall. I talk to, you know, all kinds of people. And, um, I do believe in human ingenuity. Like I think that we do have the ability to self-correct. And actually that's one of the, the main themes as well in the book is that, you know, there's these sort of human characteristics across time that, that have helped us evolve in the ways that we have. And one of the main ones is that we have the ability to listen to that feedback and then self-correct in order to continue to improve. And so I do believe that we have the capacity to do that. It's just right now we're in this situation where so many of the systems are overlapping and intersecting in such a way that the decisions that we make have these sort of exponential consequences versus incremental. And I think that's where it lends the sense of urgency. This discussion, we are going to publish the day before the election. It just, oh. the, the way it works out. I want to ask you a question, not necessarily about this election, but just about our our broader cultural narrative around politics in this country. It, it feels like when it comes to markets and it comes to the monopoly situations that you describe in the book and the, the myth of capitalism and free markets that we live in, it feels like our two major political parties have bought into that myth, but with different narratives ascribed. I hear on the right, basically, the, the myth that this is a free market. We are a free market system. And if you're struggling, then either start a business or work harder. You know, like you can get ahead. And I hear a myth on the, uh, the left of our country saying, you know, well, the outcomes of this are not good and we have an income inequality and they essentially identify like the harm being done. But the response is, let's keep the myth and let's keep the system and we'll just redistribute the spoils uh, right. a little bit differently. Totally. Are both of these myths, like am I, am I reading this correctly? Like they're both missing something fundamental. Is there a better way to think about how markets can help us on the one hand have starting a business and work harder actually result in good. And on the other hand, actually dealing with problems and struggles that people have and not just pretending they don't exist or that if we just give them money, they're okay. Can markets yeah. help solve this problem? Yeah, I think you're completely correct in identifying those. And I think what I, how I would phrase that is that both parties are focused on symptomatic issues versus the actual disease. And unless we're willing to collectively and in a bipartisan way recognize the disease and deal with it, then all of the other associated things like, you know, basically I really, there's an amazing um, female economist named Carlotta Perez, and she makes the distinction between income inequality and market inequality. And what we're dealing with is market inequality. If we successfully deal with the ways that markets are structured in a way that actually 
inevitably lead to unequal outcomes and we structure mar markets in a way, not that you're always going to have equal outcomes, but in a way where that's actually possible, then that is really where we need to be focus, focusing our attention. And I think, I truly think this is a bipartisan issue because it affects all Americans. Anything else to me is sort of a distraction at this point, you know, in terms of the politicking that goes on. And I think it's in some ways it's sort of intentional to keep us away from focused on the core issues, which really is about, you know, how do we deconcentrate wealth and power in a way that really benefits all Americans so that everyone can live a dignified life and they can send their kids to college and they can have a car in the garage and they can do all the things that, you know, are just a regular part of, of a dignified life and a dignified economic life. That should be the vision is sort of how do we return the nation to a place where everyone prospers together instead of fighting over, you know, an ever smaller piece of the pie while while, you know, the majority of the pie is sort of going to this, this very small group of individuals and companies. I think it's a beautiful way to say, it. I kind of want to end there, but I, I have a couple of other things I want to ask you about. <laughs> I started calling, or I, I heard someone use this term and I started using cities as human habitat, because mm -hmm. to me, it, it describes this entire evolutionary process of how we created cities and how cities are designed to serve us, and we are uh, symbiotic in some senses with cities, this, this human habitat we created. Yeah. Um, as part of describing things that way and studying it that way, I, I had to start to look at not only what we call at Strong Towns a suburban experiment, this broad uh, horizontal expansion of cities, but also the aggressive vertical expansion of cities, the skyscrapers and things, as this huge distortion from what kind of a natural habitat is. One of my conclusions, and, and I still don't know as I fully grasp all the implications of this, but one of the conclusions is that when you observe nature, you, you don't observe large species. You don't observe species that dominate ecosystems the way that we have created in human ecosystems, in human habitats, species that dominate. Can you talk just a little bit about the things you've learned from nature and natural systems and ecosystems and how we might think about monopolies and large pricing powers and, and that in that framework. Cause I feel like on the left, there's a narrative of the primacy of nature and the, the deep insights of nature. And I feel like on the right, there's a, there's an insight about markets and the primacy of markets and the value. And I really feel like they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. You're just talking about it with different terms. Can you, Close that gap a little bit for us. <laughs> <laughs> I could certainly start talking and see if see if that's successful at all. Um, I, that would be great. <laughs> I, is this is this what you're working on now? By the way, yeah, it is. And you kind of tease on your website like big things coming in 2021, and I'm I'm oh. not going to force you to say what the, those are, but I'm really excited about what that could be. Oh, well, first of all, I don't think I say that they're big because... <laughs> oh, I might have put that in. <laughs> who knows? But, um, <laughs> I'm in this space of exploration and sort of trying to, to figure out where I would like to go personally in this work, but then also in collaboration with a few others. And so, yeah, so there's a couple things in the pipeline that I'm excited about, which um, I'll hopefully share more at a later date. But the first thing that came to mind was, um, which we also talk about in the book, is this idea of like the square cube law, which is actually, it's a physical law that says that the, um, you know, the more mass that a 
certain object um, has, the more that the structure has to be built uh, to support that weight. And so, you know, the best example is like an elephant has very large legs and large bones and a rhinoceros is the same, hippo is the same. And this is why also structurally, from an engineering perspective, it's very difficult to continue to build taller and taller skyscrapers because you need to have the commensurate kind of structure to support it. And then it also philosophically helps us understand why, you know, large businesses start to become overburdened with a lot of bureaucracy and process and structure that makes them less nimble. Being they're sort of these lumbering giants that um, are very difficult to, to turn around. And so that's something that we see across nature. And it's, it's not to say that it's a bad thing. And I'm not, you know, big businesses are hugely important to the structure of our global economy, especially now. So, so it's not to say that they don't have a role or a place, but I do think that we have tended to maybe idolize, idolize that outcome versus other outcomes. And I think perhaps the thing, you know, when you talk about I sort of reunifying the the left and the right perspectives on these, I really think it's, a matter of, again, going back to kind of the, the world is built on paradigms. The world is built on ideas. You know, everything that we've created as humans is a result of some of somebody somewhere saying, this is how I envision the world should operate. And we're going to construct a world around that vision. And so for me, and I read Danelle Meadows, who was a, a big systems thinker. And she says the best way that you can actually, the highest leverage point that you can undertake to change systems is to go back to paradigms and change paradigms. And so, you know, I think, I think that's why these conversations are so important because I think the the left and the right need to sort of do some digging and unpacking what sits under those assumptions and maybe come to some sort of common ground to say, we actually all at the end of the day want the same things. We really do. We really just want a functioning society that where every human being has an opportunity to flourish and, you know, where our ecological systems are also given an opportunity to flourish, you know, at the same time. And, and so there are multiple approaches to how we get there. Markets are important because when we see in nature, like the, the fundamental way that life organizes is self-organizing. It's not imposed. It's not, you know, there's no top-down hierarchy that tells life how to form. You get what I'm saying? No, I I totally know what you're saying. Regardless of whether you believe in a higher power or not, I'm just saying that there there are not physical laws that... I'm a a Catholic. And when I first started studying evolution in school, I went and met with my priest and he's like, yeah, Catholics are, believe in Darwin and evolution. Like, you know, that's... It, right. God works in mysterious ways, but if you look at nature, it, it you is self- a very good priest. <laughs> I do have a, I had a great priest. You know, nature is a self-organizing thing, and, and it self-organizes through these these feedback loops that are both painful and beautiful at times, right? Right, and there are, and there's increasingly, and this is an area that I'm, you know, is goes a bit beyond my depth, but there's uh, increasingly there's people looking at the actual mathematical laws and structure that undergird the ability to self-organize, and they think that because right now in there there's this big debate that you can't 
you can't gel the laws of relativity and some aspects of physics, right? And there's this missing gap. But actually, I've been talking to some people that say, actually, there is no gap. And it's just the way that we've been looking at this is all wrong. And there is actually very clear and simple mathematical laws, which include chaos theory, um, some elements of physics and general relativity that actually work in concert together quite well. We just have to sort of shift our perspective. And, and that's how I feel about this conversation with, um, with markets and, you know, markets versus not versus regulation versus all these things. It's sort of like, how can we strip the layers off the eyes a little bit to kind of get back to a place where we can slightly tilt and see something and see the world as it is rather than as we think it should be. And I think that actually that will give us way more answers to what we're looking for. This is very philosophical, so I don't know if I answered your question at you all. You did, <laughs> and I, I think that was exactly what I was hoping to get at. We, we, we are in like this unique time, and I, I think that the post-war or the, the Bretton Woods, World War II, Cold War consensus kind of world about how we would run our economies feels like it's clearly breaking down. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do feel like you and your your book and your thoughts and the way you're approaching this is a big part of what comes next. Let me end with that. I, I do feel like there's a conversation. You and I found each other and I was really thrilled to have this conversation. You got on and said, I'm really thrilled to have this conversation. We work in two very different realms. I'm finding all kinds of people in different realms who I'm excited to talk to mm-hmm. because of this. Is there an emerging consensus that kind of goes against in my profession, the top-down engineers, the top-down planners, the, the, the Federal Reserve, PhD, consensus economists, here's how we fine-tune the economy. Is there a consensus emerging, and, and, and should people take some hope in that? I think I, similarly to you, feel like there are all these conversations happening, mostly at the margins of a lot of industries, but where there are people who really understand this and are starting to, um, I mean, there's so many components that when I say this, you know, that's not specific enough to, to say that there's consensus, but I would say that um, people are understanding that the old ways of organizing, whether it's organizational hierarchies or whether it's economic hierarchies are certainly not working. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, the, the Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency community was sort of saying that it was going to be the new wave of this. And of course, in many ways, that movement has sort of been similarly concentrated uh, in, in ways that are not effective to, to that end. But I do, I do think that in many industries, in many pockets, people recognize that, that truly healthy societies, you know, are, are diverse with distributed wealth and resources and that there are different ways that we can start approaching how we, how we achieve that end. Your website is denisehearn.com. Yes. I think people should be able to find that. You are on Twitter at, at Denise Hearn with an underscore on the end. There must be someone else who's Denise Hearn without yeah. the underscore. So make sure you put the underscore on the end so you get the right person. The book is called The Myth of Capitalism. I would highly recommend it to anyone who would like to uh, explore the nature of our current economy and how we can get closer to markets. Denise, will you... Will you come back on the show when you get to the point where you're ready to release uh, new exciting ideas? I would love to have a more conversation with you. Oh, thank you. I would love to come back. And uh, that will give me even further impetus to put my thoughts down in some intelligible fashion. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, Please do. Uh, and and if I could make one other request, share your reading list. You know, you you as we're talking here, you're bringing up uh, authors and thinkers. You quoted a lot of women that I was not aware of in these realms, and I would love it if you at some point published your reading list because I think I'd like to steal from it. Oh, sure. Yeah, I will put that down as well. Okay. Denise, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. This has been my pleasure and honor. Thanks everybody for listening and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.